Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm so excited to announce that our latest collection, The Roots, shot over the summer on a myriad of incredible women, including Katie Hessel, is now available to purchase on alighieri.co.uk. I wanted to tell you a little story about the ancient forest that Dante dreams of in Purgatory. It's described as an idyllic dream in Dante's narrative, with small birds in the highest branches, with songs of joy among the leaves which rustled the accompaniment to their rhymes. This sweet breeze, the Laura Dolce, gives its name to the Laura Choker from the Roots Collection. The pendant is the seed and the bubbling chain represents the ancient forest that grows from it. Were it to ground and anchor you in the midst of these somewhat crazy times. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that today we are in the National Gallery to speak with the brilliant writer, curator and world expert in Baroque painting, Letizia Treves currently the curator of later Italian, Spanish and French 17th century painting at the National Gallery here in London. Letizia Trevers is renowned in her field and known for staging highly acclaimed exhibitions, including the incredibly successful Beyond Caravaggio. An author and editor for numerous museum publications, Letizia previously held the position as senior director at Sotheby's in their old master painting department, and she studied the subject first as an undergraduate student at Cambridge University before receiving her master's at the Courtauld. Institute of Art. But the reason why we are standing in the National Gallery today, speaking with Letizia on the eve of lockdown, is because she has curated one of the most groundbreaking, brilliant and acclaimed exhibitions ever, Artemisia, the first exhibition of the inimitable 17th century Baroque artist to ever be held in the UK. And that is why I'm so excited to say that we are going to be touring Artemisia Gentileschi. Letizia Trevers, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much, Katie. I'm very excited to be going around with you. I'm rather sad, obviously, because lockdown starts tomorrow. It's sort of our last chance. I know I love this exhibition so much. and It's so sad, but hopefully we can give the audience a total insight and tour into this exhibition. So, so many congratulations on this exhibition and thank you so much for speaking with me today. I don't think I have ever seen such an incredible response and so many five-star reviews for a single exhibition in my life. I mean, Artemisia has just taken London by storm and calls for a total reassessment of the history of art. It is absolutely incredible. And Morgan says, thank you for bringing her to the world stage. But I mean, how have you found the reaction to the show? And were you expecting this? I wasn't expecting quite so, so much enthusiasm. It was obviously quite highly anticipated and we were due to open in April. It was really disappointing when we had to postpone. So there was a lot of kind of built up excitement. And then obviously the catalogue came out. So people had six months to read the catalogue. And so they knew. <laughs> 
great. And they knew exactly what was in it. And I think that was quite an interesting thing for people to come to an exhibition knowing exactly what's going to be in it and actually probably being better informed. So just really looking when you're in the space. I, I'm absolutely thrilled. I'm thrilled to just be able to share the story that I've been working on quite intensely for the last two years. So that was, for me, the most exciting part of it. So, I mean, you know, when 17th century painting is discussed, I mean, so much of the time, names such as Rubens or Caravaggio come up, with women mainly being dismissed from art history, as you know. Although she has been a household name in my eyes, it is only now, thanks to you, that we are really giving Artemisia Gentileschi the right recognition that she deserves. When was it that you first heard of Artemisia? Well, I don't know when I first heard. I mean, I think having studied art history in particular, interested in Baroque paintings. I was aware of her and particularly of her father, Razzio. The first time her works really struck me was in 2001. I went to see the great show on Orazio and Artemisia at the Met in New oh, York, yes. which then traveled to St. Louis and was also in Rome. And that show was very much divided. So the first half of it was all Orazio. And Orazio was the main reason I went to see that show <laughs> because I love Orazio. Yeah. And I was absolutely amazed at seeing so many pictures by Artemisia and the general feeling then is that Orazio came out the better artist I mean yeah. not by me necessarily but just generally but I really was amazed at how very different she was and I was really struck by the kind of power of her pictures and a lot of the pictures in that show are in my show here as well yeah do you remember which works that you saw by Artemisia and how did that make you feel? I mean, actually, it's probably the work we're standing in front of now. Her most famous is, is obviously Judith beheading Holofernes, but I remember being really struck by this picture, her first picture, which is of Susanna and the elders. And there was this whole debate at the time as to whether this picture was by Artemisia, whether it was actually by Orazio with just oh, Artemisia's wow. signature on it. And I think now there's a general shift, you know, 20 years on in accepting that it is entirely by Artemisia with a sort of guiding hand of her father. But I remember puzzling over it because I felt I knew Orazio quite well mm. as an artist and, and it didn't work for me. And therefore that led me to think much more deeply about Artemisia and Artemisia coming out of Orazio's studio. Absolutely. And so why did you want to then bring her to the world stage and actually make this exhibition happen? Well, you're very sweet to say it's the world stage. Um, <laughs> it is, I mean, it's the National Gallery. It's it is the National deal. Gallery. It is the National Gallery. I mean, it's not that she was unheard of. I mean, certainly in Italy, she's well known. But the inspiration really came from our acquisition. So we bought her self-portrait at St. Catherine in 2018. And from that moment, I very intensely had to really get to know the artist. I read all her letters and really look carefully at her pictures. And the idea of an exhibition came quite soon after that. And it didn't leave us much time. We had about 15, 16 months. Which is short? It is. Normally we have up to about five years for okay. these big... Wow, my gosh. ...Sainsbury Ring shows. But in a way, I sort of just delved really deep. You know, I got very deep into the subject. It was actually quite a good way of, of doing it. Definitely hard to get the loans because you don't have much time, but it helps when you're the National Gallery and it helps when you've bought a major new discovery and also when you're staging it for the first time in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just amazing that this is the first ever exhibition. I mean, you know, Artemisia was around 400 years ago. But I mean, you obviously saw this incredible exhibition at the Met nearly 20 years ago. How did you paint her in a new light? What did you want to sort of bring that was unique to the show? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very different from the show in the Met. The Met was very much presenting Orazio and then alongside Artemisia. And here, this is very much the focus is on Artemisia. Orazio is a very important figure in her life. So in fact, in this first room where we're standing, there's a picture by Orazio. And then father and daughter come together again in the final room. But but this exhibition is very much focused on Artemisia and on Artemisia, the woman as well as the artist. What yeah. I wanted is it was to sort of bring her personality out because I think you really get a sense of her forceful personality from her pictures. And the decision came quite early on to, to try and borrow some of her newly discovered letters. And from that, you know, her voice is so strong. And it was that that I felt was really important to bring out. In thinking about who might come to this exhibition, you know, two years ago, I thought people will come perhaps knowing the story of her rape as a young woman. That is the most widely known episode of her life, but might not really know her pictures. So I want to, you know, hit them with the 30 best pictures. <laughs> and some people might come to the exhibition knowing the Judith Beheading Holofernes, her mm. most famous picture, but not know anything about her, may not even know it's by a woman, you yeah. know. And I thought, well, then you really need to flesh that out and contextualize that and explain it. In the first room, we are met with this absolutely kind of staggering image that is in front of me. Susanna and the Elders from 1610 painted when she was just 17, which I just can't get over. But, you know, it's full of psychological intensity. But before we get into this work, I mean, obviously, she painted this when she was 17. To be a woman artist at that time was extremely rare. You mentioned her father's an artist. Obviously, that was a kind of classic way that women at that time would actually become to be artists. But what was her childhood like? How did she actually become to create such masterpieces at such a young age? So so she was trained by her father and that is often how 
women artists in the kind of early modern era became artists. Lavinia Fontana is another example. And what's very different about Artemisia is, I suppose, that she goes on to have an incredibly successful career independent of her father. So she is actually trained alongside her brothers. Artemisia's mother dies when she's only 12. So she's not only left to sort of bring up her younger brothers, she's the eldest child, but she is obviously trained alongside her father. And he obviously saw that she had precocious talent. We know because he, he writes a letter in 1612 to the Grand Duchess of Tuscany saying, my daughter's been painting for three years and she has no equal. And Arazzi was a very <gasps> difficult character. Wow. So he clearly saw <laughs> yeah. enormous potential in her. So that means from 1609, she's painting. And when you read those words, you think it's, it's an overly proud father <laughs> exaggerating. But then you stand in front of this picture dating from 1610 and you really understand why he said that. And interestingly, her brothers do not go on to have independent careers. Her brothers stay in the father's studio. They move with him to London. They always stay as his sort of apprentices. So she really is the star of the family who goes on to have her own career. So this work that we are standing in front of, it's absolutely huge. It's so kind of overpowering when you walk in. First of all, can you tell us about the story of this work? And then also, why did you want to start with this work in particular? It's a story taken from the Apocrypha. So it's the young Susanna goes to her garden to bathe. And as she's bathing, she's spied upon by two elders who make sexual advances towards her. She rejects them, she turns them away, and then they threaten her, say that she's been adulterous, and that would have been punishable by death. And so they're putting under question her modesty. And in this picture, Artemisia really focuses on her rejection, her physical rejection of yeah. the elders. So she's like pushing them away. Her body's twisted away from them. And it's a rather awkward pose, but I think that works because it shows how in turmoil she is. Yeah. And she has this furrowed brow, creases in between her eyes. Uh, and it's that that she focuses on in this picture. And the way she builds this picture up on a vertical so that the old men, are, who are not so old actually, we'll come back to that, but the elders sort of tower over her and you really get this contrast of her nudity with their mm. sort of heavily cloaked bodies and they're kind of stacked up above her. So you really feel their invasion of her space. It's just so clever the way she's constructed the composition. Yeah, totally. I mean, even they're separated by some kind of marble wall as well. And I mean, the fact that his red cloak is almost encroaching on her space completely, really physically as well. It is. I think what she's so good at is creating great impact in the way she composes her pictures. The figures are life-size as well. You yes. know, and you're really impressed by that when you stand in the exhibition. You, you sometimes forget that when you see these pictures reproduced. And and when you're in the spaces, all these figures around us are life-size, so it just feels like you're very present in the scenes. But I love details like the, the water sort of rippling yeah. around her foot um, as she's sort of drawing her foot clearly out of the water. And just the way the white drape is sort of draped over her groin just to cover her nudity. She manages to balance these very kind of strong visual motifs with these beautiful look at how wonderful she has this beautiful flowing golden hair sort of tickling mm. her thigh you know yeah. this lovely combination of details and yeah. kind of overall effect totally and just the drapery is so beautiful as well but I mean, it's interesting because if we think about this time in the kind of 1600s, like you mentioned earlier her contemporary Lavinia Fontana. There was also people like Sofonisba Anguissola and Clara Peters working slightly later. I mean, these women were also just tackling subjects such as still lives. But then we come to this work, which is of this kind of biblical heroine. I mean, how would she have been able to construct such monumental image at that time when it was virtually unheard of for women to really tackle these more popular genres? Yeah, I mean, because women were basically restricted. They, there were sort of social and legal restrictions. Those who did want to paint painted what they could get their hands on and that was painting yourself, painting people around you so Sofonis Banguisola paints herself a great deal, paints her sisters. Or you painted still lights because that was something you could do. They were sort of safe genres but they were really quite low genres. You know, Everyone yeah. wanted to be a history painter. That was yeah. every artist's <laughs> aim. Yeah. Uh, and for women that was very difficult and I think that sets Artemisia apart really because she does treat these big biblical, historical and mythological subjects. I think partly that's because she's following her father's example. She's exposed to very little. I mean, she's basically shut away. So she's looking at the kinds of subjects and pictures that her father is painting. Yeah. Um, and just in this room, there's a picture of Judith and her maidservant. And not only is this a subject that Artemisia also paints, but in fact, in the next room, you see her sort of revisiting this composition, actually, and making important changes to it. But her father's pictures clearly stayed with her. His example clearly stayed with her. Uh, and also from a technical point of view. And what we know 
is that Orazio was very inspired by Caravaggio and, and started adopting this practice of painting from live models. And we know Artemisia did that as well. So that often means you have quite a lot of changes as she's going along, you know. So you wouldn't have had a kind of series of preparatory drawings. Mm. I mean, she did draw. We know she drew because in her studio in Florence, there were lots of drawings in cabinets, but none of them survived. So I think that's the most kind of obvious thing that she would have painted live models. But of course, who would she have painted? Because yeah. she was at home. So servants, apprentices, people who frequented the studio. But it would have been much, much more difficult for her yeah. than for other artists who, say, went to an academy and sat and did life drawing. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fascinating. But I mean, you know, this incredible work, Susanna and the Elders, which really, as a woman, you really, it feels very sort of lifelike a contemporary, although mm. this is obviously t happening in the sort of 1610s, there is so much sort of psychological dramatism and intensity to it. You really feel for the young Susanna. I mean, do you think that this work would have resonated with her at all, being in very misogynistic and sexist society? I think so. And I, I think in this picture, you start seeing what sort of sets Artemisia apart. I think you're right. As a woman, you look at this and, and you feel just really uncomfortable yeah. for Susanna. You feel she's very exposed, her nudity and, and their proximity and her gesture she's sort of pushing them away she's saying no and I think that's what's different about this kind of rendition I mean we have to remember Artemisia is a sort of 16 17 year old she's in a very vulnerable position you know her mother's died she can't really go around Rome unaccompanied and we know that for some months she's being sexually harassed basically by an old crone Cosimo Quarli who was frequenting her father's studio and Agostino Tassi then very successful artist much more successful than Orazio wow. who was collaborating on a large fresco for the papal nephew with Orazio and we know that he was frequenting the studio so she was actually in quite a vulnerable position herself and she would have known how that felt and some people have read the younger man in this picture uh, as a sort of evocation not a portrait but something that sort of evokes the idea of a kind of old crone and a younger man of sort of reflecting in a way her own position I think you have to be careful not to push that too far yeah but absolutely she would have understood this feeling of vulnerability and brought her lived experience as a woman to these subjects. Yeah, which I think is something to embrace as well in this exhibition. We never see, especially sort of pre-1900, we don't often see the female point of view and I think it's something that we should totally embrace and I, th I find it absolutely fascinating yeah. seeing a story from that point of view. But I mean, as we walk through the exhibition, we come to the transcript of the trial. I mean, you mentioned that she was sexually abused, but can you tell us about this transcript and what happened here? So this is an incredible document document to have and you can see it's this big thick volume with hundreds and hundreds yeah. of pages it's amazing and it, you know it's in a beautifully kind of bound volume and it just looks like a kind of legal document yeah and as I said before this the episode of her rape as a young woman it is widely known and obviously I did feel we had to address it but I didn't want to hugely dwell on it yeah I feel it's one of many episodes in her life that I wanted to draw out and I thought borrowing this was a way of doing it sort of sensitively because I think people need to have a sense of the context in which it happened and the yeah context in which the trial took place. So following her assault, she enters into a relationship with Tassie for several months. And this is almost certainly because he's promised to marry her. She understands now that she's lost her virginity. He's deflowered her. That's sort of her only hope. And it's interesting because Horatio presses charges some months later after the event. And that's probably because Tassie is not doing the honourable thing. And the charges he brings against him is not for rape, it is for the deflowering, for taking <gasps> away her virginity. Oh, wow. Because for Arazzo, it's all a question of honour. And Tassie has brought dishonour on the Gentileschi name. Yeah. It's basically his reputation, his daughter's, and frankly, his professional reputation as well. So he brings these charges against him. And what's incredible about this trial is, so you would have had a scribe writing down the questions, the answers, exactly what was happening. So it's written largely in Latin, and then the responses given by witnesses are written verbatim in Italian. So you literally see what's coming out of people's mouths as it's being said. And when Artemisia gives her account of the rape and a number of witnesses are brought in, you get this incredibly detailed picture, if you like, of yeah. what Orazio's house was like, effectively like a studio. She had all these people coming in and out, artists. It was a grim world. I mean, the, you know, it was a very violent world. I mean, the, the language is appalling. Yes. I mean, they're swearing like troopers. It's not like today's courts. Really? Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And you get a sense of Tassie. Tassie's a real sexual predator. He's a scoundrel. Mm. I mean, he'd been charged with incest with his sister-in-law. He'd been charged with a failed assassination attempt on his wife because actually he was already married. And the page I decide to open the document at is the page where Artemis is brought to Tassie at the 
Tordinona prison in Rome, where he was being held, uh, in front of the judge and two other officials, she agrees to judicial torture. So she agrees to be tortured to basically prove that she's telling the truth. Oh, my God. And to prove that her earlier statement is true. But when you really read that carefully, you do get a sense of how the judge is clearly sympathetic to their cause. And, and I think everybody knows this is the only way she'll be believed. You know, yeah. her word counts for nothing. And she's 17 at she's the time. She's 17, yeah. The torture they chose with the Sibylla, a system of ropes tied around each finger, and then there was a running string that was pulled really tight and it effectively broke your fingers. Oh, my God. And, you know, she's an artist. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's her sort of livelihood. Yeah. Um, and so the judge asks, are you willing to undergo torture? She says, yes, I am. So, you know, she's so composed and dignified and she complies. You know, she knows she has no choice. Yeah. I mean, as we walk throughout the exhibition, what's so amazing about this show is that we really get a sense of who she was. I mean, what happens after her trial? Because we then enter room two, which you titled Becoming Artemisia. So she overcomes this ordeal because following uh, the torture, Tassie's finally found guilty. And it's almost certainly because she agreed to do that, that it happens. The day after the verdict, she is married off to the younger brother of, of the notary who'd helped Orazio put together his legal defence. Clearly a deal that had been struck before the trial ended. So once again, you have to remember women were basically belonged to their fathers until they belonged to yeah. their husband. She had no say in the matter. Oh but God. it's with him that she moves to Florence because he's from Florence. In a way, that was the making of her, which is why I called this room Becoming Artemisia, because it's in Florence that she finally steps out of Orazio's studio and she finds her own path and it's here that she sort of grows into the artist she would become you know she yeah. finds her feet she sets up a studio and she starts working for patrons and it's here she joins the the academy the yeah. artists academy as the first woman ever first woman in oh the academy's you know 50 year history and that was vital for her you know she got to meet other artists finally you know she'd been shut up in Rome so finally in, a, in an academy she can meet intellectuals writers potential patrons I mean that opened a lot of doors for her Mm, absolutely. So we're standing in front of two of the most powerful works, I think, of the history of art, both versions of her Judith beheading Holofernes. These are just so brutal and violent. I mean, I saw this show about uh, six weeks ago now, but I actually... I'm still feeling so overwhelmed at just the sheer scale of these works. I mean, can you tell us about what's in front of us? So Artemisia treats the subject of Judith beheading Holofernes. Judith, whose city, Bethulia, is under siege. She enters the enemy camp to dine with the Assyrian general Holofernes. She's sort of decked out in all her finery. And it's over dinner that he gets drunk. And as he sort of falls asleep, she grabs his sword. So you can look at how huge and oversized the sword is and beheads him in in the tent. Now her maidservant is standing outside keeping watch in the story, but actually Artemisia brings her inside the tent and she's very much an accomplice. She's very much sort of helping, pinning Holofernes down while Judith sort of does this horrible deed. And then they have to escape the camp with the head of Holofernes in a bag and bring it back to Bethulia. And Judith effectively saves her city, but also saves her people. So she's a great sort of heroine. And I think it's a very well-known subject, being painted and, and sculpted many, many times before. But I think what Artemisia brings to it is once again a deep understanding of what it would be like as a woman to do this. I mean, she does not shirk away from showing the kind of violence <laughs> and the gore. I mean, not at all. <laughs> particularly in the picture that's now in the Uffizi. This is the second of the two versions and she goes one step further. The blood is sort of spilling and streaming down the bedsheets, but it's also spurting and bouncing off her corset and splattering her chest. It's a really unflinching account. I think in that she's very unique. She's not frightened of showing it. It must have been quite shocking to contemporaries. Yes. Not only is it horrifically violent, but it's also now. painted by a woman, you know. <laughs> yeah, especially the second one, which is from 1613 to 14. I mean, just the way that she's even grabbing his hair and through the bases in her fingers, you can feel that. I love tense. that, though. That, that it's like we said before, you know, there's a great kind of overall strength in the design. Then there's these beautiful details, like the little tufts of hair peeking through yes. her fingers as she's sort of pulling his hair. <laughs> but also look at the hilt of the sword. She's pressing it into his arm. And so it's like kinking on, on yeah. his muscly upper arm. I mean, there are so many wonderful details in this picture, but it's the sort of full force of it that I think really hits you. And again, because the figures are life size and the way she's cropped it, your eye level is on Holofernes's level. Yeah. So you feel like you're by the bedside. Yeah. I mean, it is really incredibly truthful, actually. I think yeah. that's what really hits me with this picture that it's a really hard thing to cut off someone's head. You don't have to do it in one clean stroke. <laughs> they are really butchering him like a really piece of meat. Really struggling. And, you know, you can see that, again, she has this sort of furrowed brow, which I read as resolve, and she's very kind of concentrated in her task. Yeah. I mean, I think, for me, the thing that draws me is just this, this sort of slit in his mouth, as though he's sort of 
just holding on to that last breath of life. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a picture that evokes noises in your head. You know, yeah. you can hear the screams, and yet they're having to do it in this quiet a way as possible you know that because they're they're sort of hiding in his tent and they're having to escape soon yeah i mean the women are very composed where would something like judith and holofernes have been kept at this time we just don't know actually and the first version which is now in the capodimonte in, in naples was probably painted in rome and then she probably brought a tracing of that picture with her to florence and the one now in uffizi almost certainly was painted for the grand duke cosimo de medici but we don't actually know that it was in the medici collections early on, but not recorded as such in Artemis' own day. I mean, they're just phenomenal. And then as we turn to our left, we can see Judith and her maidservant, which again, I mean, you mentioned this is the aftermath of the story. So they're carrying, I mean, what kind of looks at first are these in this beautiful, beautiful frame as well, I have to say. These two women, you can really feel they're kind of united with this act of sisterhood. You've got Judith with her arm around her maidservant. And then Actually, I had to kind of second glance this to actually see the beheaded head in the basket. And you can see the blood is sort of seeping through the basket weave and dripping oh down. God, dripping down the sort of white cloth that they've used to sort of conceal it. In a way, she's quite like her father, Orazio. The fact that she sort of delights in painting different textures in this picture, I think she's an absolute master at painting different fabrics. Yeah. So different whites. Everything has a slightly different tonality and you can feel one cloth is slightly heavier than another. I mean, she does that so brilliantly. Yeah. The way it's all bunched up on the maidservant's sort of hip and then you can see the lacing of her corset you know it's just yeah. beautiful details she was obviously very interested in clothes and in materials this is something that Orazio is incredibly skilled at painting you know different silks and fabrics but I think she's also interested in it and in jewels and we know this from her letters she used to deck herself out in beautiful clothes and jewels she also knew she had to look the part yeah. in Florence if you were going to get the Medici <laughs> to you know to commission works from you you had to look also if you were going to paint paintings like that I think you had to look the part <laughs> but I mean, what's so beautiful about this exhibition is actually if you stand just in front of Susanna and the Elders and you can see Orazio's version of Judith and her maidservant and then you've placed it beautifully in a sort of diagonal eye and you can see the two same stories, Judith and her maidservant, this one by Artemisia Gentileschi and the other one by Orazio. What was your kind of intentions of having that eye line? Did you want people to compare them in a way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as a curator, you often think very carefully about how you hang the runes, sort of the story you want to tell, but you often make sort of visual connections. And of course, you always hope that people are going to make those connections when they're <laughs> in the room. Normally, if an exhibition is very crowded, no one can see anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, because of social distancing, actually, I think, funnily enough, in this exhibition, all those sight lines and the things I thought very carefully about, but what you see through doorways, what's framed, you know, I think they are going to be appreciated by the public. Behind us, we have our self-portrait alongside her other two self-portraits and here too it's almost like a mini exhibition in the exhibition yeah you know I wanted people to sort of be confronted with Artemisia so I think there are lots of moments in this show where you need to sort of take a pause and just just look at the two or three pictures in front of you and here I, I carefully positioned a portrait of Artemisia through the doorway a portrait by Simon Vouet a French artist so that people could sort of see how Artemisia saw herself but then looking ahead you see how other artists saw her as well yeah so I love this section of the exhibition because I mean I don't know if this is the right way to do it but I definitely am sort of drawn to the Judith's first and then I come to this much sort of softer much more intimate part of the exhibition where it's in this sort of beautiful concave of a wall and we see Artemisia in all these different guises we see her as a lute player as St Catherine of Alexandria I mean this is really interesting because on the one hand she's immortalizing herself as this kind of fourth century saint who was martyred you know tied to a wheel of vicious spikes and then someone who's a bit more contemporary and as a lute play I mean through these self-portraits how do we see that she saw herself it's quite difficult and we don't know the circumstances in which these were commissioned and, and that's true of many of her pictures yes. so there are choices that she obviously made as an artist but then there would have been stipulations by the people commissioning the work so the, the picture of her as a lute player was in the Medici collection very early on in Artemis's own lifetime and almost certainly records a real event which was that she, a certain Ar, Signor Artemisia, and Artemisia is quite an unusual name in Florence, it's almost certainly Artemisia Gentileschi, dressed up as a gypsy and performed and danced at the Ballo delle Zingare, a dance of the gypsy women at the Medici court. And I think this picture where she's got a little kind of hoop earring and a sort of drape around her hair and she's shown playing the lute, I think there's something very theatrical about this. She's clearly performing a role, yeah. assuming the role of a kind of gypsy musician. So I think this picture 
records a sort of real event. So this was almost certainly commissioned, and it's a very literal self-portrait. You can see her features are very recognisable in this. Uh, our own picture of St Catherine, I think, is a bit more idealised. It's clearly very closely related to the lute player, but she's lengthened her neck a bit, she's smoothed out the hump on her nose, and she's wearing something more befitting of a, a fourth-century saint. And we just don't know. I mean, it's clear these two pictures were done contemporaneously in the studio. She almost certainly used a tracing of her head and shoulders of the lute player for this. And we're learning a lot about her practice. There's still so much to learn, to yeah. be honest. But I think, you know, like any artist, she would have various pictures on the go, mm. you know? And I think she had these pictures. Ultimately, she had a mirror. She could have painted herself. And there was clearly a market for them. There must have been a demand for these pictures. But she also probably turned to painting herself when she first arrived in Florence because she just had to stop paint things for the market. I love how, actually I've just noticed this now, how in all the different portraits she's actually facing the same way. Yeah, which of course, you know, it's probably the kind of standard thing that she would have had a mirror to yeah. one side and she would have painted her reflection in that. And I think we have to remember that because over half her pictures have at one point or another said to contain her yeah. self-portrait. And I think we have to be quite careful in doing that. I mean, there is the same type in various different pictures, but when you're confronted with a real self-portrait, you do see she's got quite distinctive features. Absolutely. So as we move on to the third we're met, as you said, with this portrait of Artemisia. I mean, at this point, she's living in Florence. She's becoming very successful. I mean, what's happening in her career that she is so, you know, in demand that she actually has a portrait made of her? Yeah, so Florence is really key for her. I mean, as we said before, she joins the Academy. She basically sets herself up as an artist. And there's no question that she builds a circle of patrons and so on. So when she comes back to Rome in 1620, she's in financial trouble. We know that because she upsticks and leaves her studio, basically from one day to the next and all the contents of the studio are seized basically and she's in debt so she comes back to Rome almost certainly to seek the second half of her dowry from her father but she is a celebrity when she comes back to Rome you know we have to remember in Florence there were quite a lot of successful women there were successful musicians she wasn't completely alone in fact that the Medici women were a very strong driving force at the court in Florence Rome is very different Rome is very male dominated but she comes back and she's a celebrity so what you have in this room is called the hand of the famed Artemisia is because patrons wanted things not only by her hand but also of her so she is a sort of object of fascination so you have her in an engraving you have her in a medal you have her in a painting and it's this sort of singular position as a successful female painter I think that really draws people to her yeah I mean this work that we're standing in front of is absolutely beautiful it's by Pierre Dumostier it's called the right hand of Artemisia Gentileschi holding a brush and this is so intimate and so beautiful. I mean, yes. why did you want to include this and, and what did it mean to have such a kind of elegant drawing of a hand? It's absolutely exquisite. I mean, to me, it's such a sophisticated drawing, so yeah. delicately put together but I love the idea it's a portrait yeah. of it's her like hand yeah it's a it is like a relic and there's this beautiful inscription where he, he says this is a portrait of the right hand of the famous Artemisia Gentileschi painted in Rome in 1625 and what I find extraordinary she's got this very delicate posture with the little finger like we would drink a cup of tea yes. with her little finger <laughs> raised and she's holding the most delicate brush I couldn't find a single picture in, in this <laughs> exhibition that could have been painted with a brush like that maybe the blood on Holofernes sheets <laughs> exactly maybe the spatters um, no, it's a really, really exquisite drawing. And to me, I've put it here next to the title of the room, The Hand of the Famed Artemisia, because to me it encapsulates that. It's the fact that people wanted things by her hand, but also that everyone marvelled at how... You know, someone also so beautiful. She was very renowned to be a great beauty. You know, so, so beautiful could also be so talented. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, just so fascinating. As we move on throughout this room, we also come to one of the most incredible parts of this exhibition, which is her group of letters. I mean, this is absolutely fascinating that, first of all, these exist, but also what they tell us. From going through this exhibition, we're thinking, obviously, traumatic upbringing. Then she kind of becomes this star. She comes back to Rome. Yet, in the meantime, she's having children who are subsequently dying. I mean, only one of five children survive. What did these letters tell us about who she actually was and what she was going through? So these letters belong to a group of letters that were discovered only in 2011. We had these five restored, and it's the first time they've 
being seen outside of Italy. So I was very keen to borrow some. There are about 35, 36 letters written by Artemisia and her husband to Artemisia's Florentine lover, who she carries on having a relationship with, we think, for some years. So these letters are mainly written by Artemisia once she's come back to Rome and her lover is still in Florence. And in reading these letters again and again, I really wanted to bring out these aspects of Artemisia's personality in a yep. way. And in a way, subvert some of these preconceived ideas we have of her. I mean, she has become this feminist icon. Yep. And she, you know, people sort of have viewed her as a victim. Yep. And I think what she really comes out of in, in these letters is not as a victim, actually. She's a fighter. She's a survivor. She's incredibly strong-willed. She's witty. She wasn't educated. I mean, women of Artemisia's sort of social status would not have been educated. So she didn't know how to read and write. And we know that at the trial. She says, you know, she can't. And here we're looking at letters written in her hand. So she clearly taught herself to read and write. I mean, they're not written in particularly sophisticated Italian, but I think that's almost, for me, that's even more charming because you get a real sense of her voice. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's one letter where she literally has no punctuation at all. The, the <laughs> words just run from one line to the next. And it's like stream of consciousness, yeah. you know. And the way also we've pulled out some quotes, you know, I love these sort of disparate thoughts because in one letter she can talk about her work, her children, her jealousy, all one after the other. You know, for her, she's just as kind of passionate about all these things. Um, but, you know, in this one, she talks about Ovid. So this idea that she wasn't educated, it doesn't mean she wasn't cultured. Yeah. You know, she would have perhaps known some of these quite important classical texts and Renaissance texts from the spoken word, from hearing recitals. And so I felt it was very important to bring these aspects of her out. These are her, both her personality, but also the kind of get a more rounded picture of, of who Artemisia really was. Totally. I mean, they're just incredibly kind of intimate in the sense that, you know, I could almost imagine her scribing these in a flurry at candlelight or something you know, know you can really and feel her that it's very legible still now they give me they're sort of spine tingling you know she's such a, a, an important figure and to see something written in her hand and, and something that was actually very intimate these were written to her lover no one was ever really meant to see these and there's something slightly naughty about reading them now but this one here she writes uh, we're standing in front of one of the letters which is really scrawled and very messy compared to the others and this is a letter in which she's telling her lover that her little boy Christophanos just died he was four four and a half and she says, you know, I'm torn apart by grief. You can see even, even if you don't read Italian, you can see in the way it's written, there's so much kind of emotion in this letter, you know, in the way she's sort of scrawled um, with the ink. You can, you can almost hear it sort of scratching, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can say, imagine her by candlelight writing these. There is something very, very... Um, moving about seeing her words written in her hand. Absolutely. But I mean, she wasn't only writing letters to her lovers. She was also writing incredible letters to her illustrious patrons. I mean, as we move into this room, we really get a sense of this powerful woman. I mean, can you tell us about her relationship with her patrons and how she actually had this incredible business mind as well? We actually don't know a huge amount about her patrons, certainly not in Rome. We don't really know who she frequented. I mean, it's interesting, all these portraits of her yep. are by French or anyway, non-Italian artists. And I think she very much frequented the kind of northern and Flemish painters in Rome, so not Italians. And it's interesting to think, why? Is it because as a woman, she was sort of an outsider as well? She's not frequenting the leading patrons in Rome. I mean, she basically built her success, I think, on painting these subjects in which women feature very strongly because I think it's what she was really good at you yeah. know she could inject them with a sort of feminine sensibility and I think it's what sets her work apart but she clearly built a kind of reputation on that and I think patrons knew that if you were a 17th century collector and you went to Artemisia and asked for a picture of Susanna, Lucretia, Giles or the Magdalene you would know that you were going to get something different from Artemisia. Yes. I think it was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in a way you sort of made her reputation and success on that but also then patrons knew that that's what they would get from her. Yeah I mean Jail and Cicero is such an incredible work. Well, firstly, again, you know, she always kind of presents these women in very calm and sort of composed positions. At first, if I'm completely honest, a bit like sort of Judith and her maidservant, <laughs> what I'm looking at is, you know, a woman almost caring for this man. But then you look again and she's actually about to drill this nail into the side of his temple. That's right. She's about to hammer <laughs> a temp peg into his head. But she's incredibly calm. I think here I see it more that it's a woman absolutely determined to carry out this yep. task, whatever the task is. And in that, I think she's sparing us the gore. It hasn't actually happened yet. But like Judith, Giles knows what she has to do. And there's a sort of composure here and it makes me think of Artemisia's composure in yeah. the courtroom as well mm. kind of understanding that if you know you've got to do something you just get on and do it yeah absolutely and so I mean you mentioned earlier you know this idea that if she was to create these biblical heroines it would always be from a sort of singular point of view we're currently standing in front of the Mary Magdalene this is a Mary Magdalene that I've 
never seen. If anything, it looks so contemporary. You can almost imagine, feel this kind of sensuality that she's experienced. I mean, can you tell us what we're looking at and the story in which this was placed? So Mary Magdalene's normally shown penitent, where she rejects all worldly goods and decides to leave a life of vice and follow Christ. But here, she's shown in ecstasy. Her head's thrown back. She's in a state of complete abandon. Her shirt is slipping off her shoulder. She seems completely unaware of that and unaware of us standing right beside her. And it's very clever the way Artemisia has put her side on. So it's a horizontal picture and she's in the immediate forefront of the picture. So she feels very present, like you feel can almost touch her. And yeah. it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. You're brought sort of uncomfortably close to this very private, you ecstatic really feel the flesh. Yeah. Magdalene and Ecstasy is a subject that Caravaggio had treated before as well. Um, that, that composition was very well known. There are lots of versions and copies of it. So she may have seen that and got the idea of showing her in Ecstasy or someone might have commissioned. But again, I think what she does is it's the way she frames the picture, it's the way she imagines it as a woman. It's a very different sensibility, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this picture, the more people I speak to about this exhibition, this has been one that has really kind of resonated with them, maybe because it's less known, but also just because I feel like she's just conveying the kind of female happiness and sort of sensuality. There's there's so much kind of glory in it as well. Yeah, I, th I think also key is, as you said, it, it, it looks so modern. Yes. It's very hard to think <laughs> of this as a picture painted in the 1620s. And I think that's what people respond to. Now, yeah. the thing about Artemisia, she's very relatable and yeah. her pictures are very relatable. You don't necessarily need to know the story of the Magdalene. This is a very strong picture of a woman clearly in ecstasy. And I think that's the key to why she's so famous now, but also why people really are fascinated by her. Yeah, totally. I mean, she's a total kind of feminist symbol nowadays. And I mean, I've known about her for a number of years, but when I discovered her, I was like, oh my God, a woman who's actually kind of saying how it is in the yeah. 1620s. Yeah. And I think that's probably why people resonate with her so much. In the 70s, she was particularly picked up by the feminists. Mm, that's right. And so actually this exhibition in 1976-7, which went to several museum venues in the States, was the first great international exhibition dedicated to women artists. And several pictures by Artemisia were shown there alongside some of the other artists we've talked about, you know, Lavinia Fontana, Sofonis Banguissola. But imagine visiting, I mean, I've seen installed photographs of that exhibition, but imagine visiting that show and you must have been so struck by how everyone else was painting portraits and still lives. And then you were faced with these incredibly forceful, I mean, actually the picture we're standing in front of, which is now in Detroit, this candlelight scene of Judith and yeah. her maidservant, so fabulous, so mm. theatrical. That was in that show. Imagine seeing that alongside what other women artists were painting yeah. throughout the centuries, even after Artemisia. I think there's no question that it must have been sort of hit people yeah. in that show. Yeah, and I think that's why this exhibition has been so popular because people are just so excited to also see a kind of other angle of all these different stories in our history. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, you mentioned before about her being a feminist. I mean, I really do believe she was a feminist yeah. in the truest sense of the word before the word had even been coined. Yeah. It's in these letters to her patrons that you mentioned before that you get a real sense of that because the letters to her lover are very intimate. The letters to her patrons talk more about her work, the way she sees herself in the art market. She defends her prices. It's where she makes these declarations about, you know, having the spirit of Caesar and the soul of a woman. And she says to her patrons, she says, with me, you will not lose. Yeah. I'm the winning ticket. I love this. Yeah, and, and you get a real sense of her, of how she saw herself in a man's world. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so encouraging, even now, you know, 400 years on. But I mean, we are coming to this room, which is actually called the spirit of Caesar in the soul of a woman. So she's been obviously very successful in Rome. What's happening towards the end of her life? Does she stay? Does she travel? So she goes in the late 1620s for a couple of years. She's in Venice. A lot of work's been done very recently on this period in Venice. And it seems that she was very much embedded in this circle of women writers as well, feminist writers, really. And Mary Garrard and Jessie Locker in particular have worked a great deal on that. So there's still so much to kind of understand. Stand. After Venice, she probably leaves Venice because of the plague. So she moves to Naples in 1630 and she stays in Naples until the end of her life. So she's here for about 25 years. And suddenly, we, you know, I wanted to evoke in this room, partly the colours are very dark, you know, I wanted to evoke this kind of much more almost claustrophobic feel yeah. in these rooms, but also the scale of the pictures. So we're mm. standing in a room with four enormous pictures. We haven't <laughs> seen anything on this scale yeah. until now because I wanted it to be very clear to visitors that what Naples did, it opened other opportunities for her. And she suddenly paints on a monumental scale. She's painting altarpieces. So yeah. until this point, none of her pictures are on display in any public space. 
They're all owned by private collectors. So this is what really changes in Naples. And she collaborates with other artists and contributes pictures to cycles and series of pictures. So it's a very different kind of activity for Artemisia in Naples. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that throughout her whole career, it feels like she's also adjusting to the town that she's working in. I mean, was she very conscious of adjusting herself to different patrons? Oh, definitely. And I think what this show really demonstrates is just what a chameleon she is. And, and that's been said in the past in a negative sense. I don't see it negatively at all. I think the pictures she paints in Rome are very different from those in Florence and very different from those in Naples. In Naples, she becomes a very Neapolitan artist. Just the tonality of the pictures, the scales of the pictures. And I think that's the thing. I think it's part of her business acumen. You know, she knows that she has to adapt her style to the tastes and the patrons in the cities in which she worked. Yeah. So, I mean, we're in the penultimate room now. And what's really interesting is that we're looking at another Susanna and the Elders, this time from 1652. I mean, this was 42 years after the first one. Obviously, she's had this incredible career. This is right at the end of her life. This, although it shows the same story, I mean, it's a very different point of view and composition. So this picture is, she's almost 60 when she paints this picture. And it's almost certainly a picture she paints with another Neapolitan painter painter Onofrio Palumbo because we have a, a joint payment to both artists for a picture of this subject. That in itself is really significant that she almost has a formal arrangement with painters in Naples. So she would have had her own workshop but she also collaborated with others and I think it's as you say this is on a much larger scale it's on a horizontal so it's very theatrical the figures yes. are sort of set out like on a stage yeah. and even her gesture you know the old men and Susanna are not overlapping she's sort of shirking away from them but her hand gesture is one of theatrical rejection. Yeah. Certainly less <laughs> psychological yeah. but it's no less dramatic mm. and I think what this picture is you have to read this picture in the contents of the kind of high baroque in Naples so the kind of by the middle of the 17th century these are the kinds of pictures that people are painting you've lost a bit that sort of forceful tightly cropped caravagesque really approach to your pictures and you instead you have this much more kind of theatrical so again she's adapting to the fashion of the time if you like the woman seems so much more in command of these elders as well from the beginning what's interesting is in the 18th century this picture is described and the writer eulogizes the fact that it's so erotic because you can see the shape of her naked body beneath the white chiffon shirt that she's sort of thrown over herself. You know, it's interesting. It's erotic. I don't really read it like that. I mean, you can definitely read her body beneath it. But it's so interesting that the male gaze, obviously yeah. for a man looking at this picture, that's clearly what they saw in it. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, this, when we come to the end of this exhibition, what's happening right at the end of her life? Because we're firstly met by these two incredible images. One is by Orazio, one is by Artemisia. And then we come to this work called Self-Portrait as the Allegory. I mean, where was she right at the end of her life? So she actually dies in Naples. We don't even know when, actually, but we assume she dies in Naples. But I felt... I. Partly because, obviously, as a curator, you think about the spaces you're dealing with and working with. And I didn't really want to end on Naples. I didn't want to end on her final Susanna. But I don't think it's her greatest work. I mean, I think it's a really accomplished and really interesting thing. But I thought, because this is the first exhibition in the UK, I wanted to end on her time in London, which actually happened in the late 1630s. And also, as we said at the beginning, I was very interested in sort of bringing father and daughter together again, because it's here they were reunited. And I thought that was a lovely narrative, bookending the show, is this artistic relationship with her father. So here, there's a very kind of dramatic finale where we're presented with a picture by Artemisia of Esther swooning, fainting before Ahasuerus from the Met in New York. God, how, how ability to create the use of material is just mind-blowing. It's, it's wonderful. It's on a huge scale. It's one of her most ambitious works. Probably painted actually in Venice in the late 1620s because it's actually very closely inspired by painting by the Renaissance artist Paolo Veronese that was then in Venice and is today in the Louvre. And then next to that, a picture on a very similar scale and similar superficially, very theatrical as well, by Orazio of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, which was painted here in England. So they'd painted just a few years apart, painted at the court of Charles I, where Orazio worked and where Artemisia joined him in the 1630s. And I felt this it was a very eloquent way, visually in a way, of showing, oh yes, these artists are quite similar superficially, but actually the more you look at them, they're both very interested in materials and fabrics, but Orazio's just so dazzling. I mean, the technique is, is superb. But for Artemis, it's all about the human drama. And I think you see that so eloquently in this sort of 
stage off. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, it's like, you know, having this portal into some kind of stage or theatre. I mean, they just come alive and there's so much movement in them as well. You can almost see them. She's literally mid-falling at that point. She's swooning. And actually, originally, Artemisia had, you can just see a sort of shadowy figure. There was a little page boy between Ahasuerus and Esther and there was a dog. Uh, Veronese often included these little elements in these big theatrical scenes. She painted them out and actually this picture is all about the void. Mm. Yeah, And I think that's where he, she gets a real sense of the kind of psychological drama of her stories. Whereas Arazzo, you're, you're sort of completely seduced by the paint surface, by his ability to paint sheets and gold and beautiful embroidered slippers. That mattress. I mean, the mattress. <laughs> I want a purple silk mattress. Yes. But beyond that, you know, Potiphar's wife is like a mask. There's no sort of psychology there. You know, I just think it's not that one is better than the other. I think their aims were just very, very different. Such a fantastic way to end. And then we come to self-portrait as the allegory. This is such a stunning work from 1638. I mean, can you tell us about this? Sure. I mean, this is actually the sort of lasting image I wanted in people's minds. That's why it's the last picture in the show. It's also one of her most famous, but it's much debated whether this picture is a self-portrait or whether it is, in fact, an allegory of painting, because we know that both pictures existed in the royal collection from inventories. And to me, it doesn't really matter. You know, in a way, it's both and neither. I, I think what she does is she clearly associates herself with this image, with the sort of female personification of painting. And she follows to the letter this iconographical handbook that describes how you must paint the figure of painting. Dark, dishevelled hair, holding a palette and brushes with shimmering robes and a chain with a mask. So she, she's really, just with a few little strokes of the brush, she evokes this kind of gold chain, there's a little mask hanging off. So she's very literal, you know, in following this text. But what she also does is, of course, you look at this and you, you associate the artist with her subject. You know, she embodies the picture. Uh, she puts her initials very clearly in the front, which is her way of sort of making her mark on the picture. Anyone seeing this, would have, of course, associated Artemisia with the figure of painting. And that's, of course, something no male artist could do. And this is where I think Artemisia is so clever. She was fully aware of the kind of difficulties in being a woman painter. Um, but she was constantly challenging them and in some ways embracing them and, and turning them to her advantage. And she knew that by sort of associating herself with painting, this is something that she could do, but no other male artist could do. Absolutely. So how do you want people to leave this exhibition? I mean, I think I've done Artemisia justice. Yes. I've really borrowed her, her, her sort of best works. So I think people will leave, you know, with her in high esteem. I think they'll have a very kind of true, but also very good sense of her as a painter, uh, but also as a woman, I think, because I think the fact of having met her through her letters and the transcript, I think you get a sense of her voice. You know, I think people will leave with a much fuller picture of who she was, but also hopefully also understanding in her time, she was something really unusual. Absolutely. I mean, it's just... Incredible. I mean, on the eve of lockdown, <laughs> this has been such a treat to also revisit. I mean, I'm so honoured to be speaking with you, but also to be having spent so much time. And I really think that this has really put Artemisia Gentileschi on, on the map. Thank you. It's been history. a delight for me as well. <laughs> Spend some time with her before lockdown. <laughs> exactly. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could go back in time or perhaps you could see the show, would there be anything that you would have ever have wanted to ask or say to Artemisia? How on earth did you do it? <laughs> How did you overcome the social challenges of the time, your awful father? Yeah. How did you have five children in five years and still be the breadwinner? Basically, you know, she was alone most of her life. How did you have a career entirely on your own? bringing out your daughter on your own and how did you do it at a time when it was just so difficult absolutely thank you so much Letitia Chavez for coming on the podcast today thank you for having me thank you all so much for listening to the 48th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the fantastic Letizia Treves on Artemisia Gentileschi I am just amazed at Gentileschi's life and career and of course the exhibition that Letizia has curated so beautifully if any listeners are able to make it to London then the National Gallery will reopen after lockdown and Artemisia will stay open until the 24th of January 2021 as always I have linked to more articles artworks and resources in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry and if you have been enjoying this episode so far I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 